This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Coming up, we want enemies. As allies. You're getting a lot of hate from people saying, stop outing bishops, stop causing trouble. My only regret is that I didn't do it earlier uh, and to more often, more often to other people. I had this fantastic, extraordinary dream. Oh, really? A straight wet dream. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and the more I did it, the more I liked it. Again, a non-gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. Two unlikely friends take on the world. Welcome to Again and Non-Gay. It's LGBT History Month. And today's guest is one of the most important queer human rights activists on the planet. He's been described as a homosexual terrorist, a sick piece of shit and an outcast. And worse, I owe this man a huge gratitude for everything I have as a gay man today. Your bravery, passion and unending fight for freedom, equality and justice has just given so much to our community in the UK and world. Well, I do my bit, but so do many others, and it's together that we make the change. No, but it is also a lot to do with you. (laughs) A bit, maybe a bit. (laughs) It's Peter Tatchell, everyone. Yay! Welcome to a gay and a non-gay. Happy birthday. You turned 70 <laughs> just now. So congratulations. That's amazing. Uh, when you came out, how many years ago? 1969 at the age of 17. Wow. It was very different then. Absolutely. Not just in the UK, but around the world. It was illegal in Australia where you were and you could be arrested or offered psychological treatment. Even, even forced to undergo psychiatric treatment to cure my homosexuality. Fortunately, that never happened to me, but I know people it did happen to, and it really screwed them up emotionally, sexually, and mentally. So yeah, I grew up in a very, very different era when the medical and psychiatric professions still said that we as gay people were sick, when there were no openly gay public figures, uh, and when um, the media was just universally hostile. The only time you ever saw a story about LGBT plus people or issues was when someone was exposed as a traitor, a child molester or a mass murderer. There was nothing positive at all. Psychologically and emotionally, it was very hard to cope with. But fortunately, you know, even from an early age, I was very much attuned to social justice issues. So I was very much inspired by the black civil rights movement in America. And I took my inspiration from them. I adapted some of their ideas and methods to my own campaigns. That's sort of what sustained me in the early days when in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia in 1969, there were no LGBT plus organizations, not even any helplines or switchboards, absolutely nothing. And when you arrived here, how did the UK feel in contrast to Australia? Was it similar in terms of the homophobia? At the time, in 1971, when I came to London, Britain was much more liberal, not perfect by a long shot, but compared to Australia, more liberal. Back in Melbourne, homosexuality was illegal, abortion was illegal, there was state censorship of books, plays and films. It was a very, very illiberal society. So coming to Britain, there had been some progressive changes, albeit imperfect. So it felt more liberal here, but obviously there were still battles to fight. You said that you'd calculated it was going to be 50 years. The struggle to win LGBT rights would be 50 years. Where did you get that figure from? How did you work that out? Well, I looked at the history of the black civil rights movement in America 
and it had taken them roughly about half a century to get rid of segregation in the Deep South and other discrimination against African-American people. So I, I calculated at that stage that LGBT plus people were an oppressed minority deserving of equal rights in the same way as black people were. And that based on that history of the civil rights movement, it would probably take about 50 years to win legal equality in Western countries like Australia, Britain and the US. But it was just a guesstimate, you know. <laughs> it's turned out roughly correct. Yeah. But it, it was, a, was a bit of a wild guess. For many years, there were laws to protect black and ethnic minority people against discrimination. And there were no such laws to protect LGBTs. But now we have the Equality Act, which is a level playing field for everyone. And that's actually a legislation that I first campaigned for in 1978. Wow. Um, and I advocated it when I stood as the Labour candidate in the Bermondsey, notorious Bermondsey by-election <laughs> in 1983. A left-wing militant was picked last night to fight in the next election. I'm very confident that I will stop the Tory rent increases, demand jobs for the unemployed, which everybody in the Labour Party agrees with. Peter Tatchell's homosexuality was ridiculed by his opponents and by some on his own side. Tatchell is a puppet. As pretty as can be But he must be slow And he don't know He can't be our MP But the Labour Party even was very you know, very reluctant because the idea of a comprehensive equality act, they thought it was a bit extreme, or, you know, or that it would give, you know, ammunition to the Daily Mail and the Sun. But eventually, in 2010, with the Equality Act, it did become law. That's crazy about Labour because what one is led to believe is that Labour in the 1980s and the 1983 manifesto was so extreme and it was so left-wing and that's why they never got elected. But actually, relatively mainstream proposals like the one that you're talking about weren't even getting a look in. Absolutely. But, you know, compared to the Conservative government under Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> Labour was progressive. And from the mid-1980s, Labour, unlike the Conservatives, was advocating full LGBT plus equality. You were part of a, a radical protest group called Outrage. As part of that, Peter outed secretly gay bishops. Now, I think that's amazing. <laughs> now, uh, a lot of people were very angry with you, including many people from the queer community. And I think probably some would still disagree with your action then. In hindsight, do you think it was wrong to out members of the clergy? Well, the first thing to say is that we never outed them because they were gay and in the closet. It was because they were part of a homophobic church that was not only saying that gay people are sinners and must repent, but was actively campaigning against gay equality to sustain legal discrimination. So the church was abusing its power and influence in order to harm our community. In outrage, we saw outing as queer self-defense. We were seeking to protect our community against those doing harm. And the upshot was that those 10 bishops who were named, as far as I know, after they were named, they never again aligned with or said anything homophobic, biophobic or transphobic. So it had a positive impact. And it also, <laughs> it also provoked then Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. George Carey, to open up the first ever dialogue with the lesbian and gay Christian movement, which he'd always previously refused. And it did prompt some other bishops, more liberal bishops, to speak out in favour of LGBT plus human rights. So it had three wins, that, that action. And my only regret is that I didn't do it earlier <laughs> and to more often, more often to other people, because it does shut people up when yeah. they're exposed as not only homophobes, but hypocrites. They get very embarrassed and they tend to keep quiet. And that's what we wanted. We wanted to keep quiet. And in the case of MPs, stop 
voting against equality. I agree. It's funny, though, when you say you're outing someone, it makes me think of like Dan Wooten in The Sun outing Will Young, which obviously is wrong because he's not colluding with homophobia. But these bishops are going around very much like conversion therapists lying to people, putting shame on everybody else because they can't deal with who they are inside. Or some of them didn't explicitly speak out, but they endorsed the church's official policy, which was incredibly homophobic. Did you think, did you weigh it all up or was it an instant decision like, I know I have to do this? Well, the decision to name the bishops was a decision made by the LGBT plus direct action group Outrage. We had repeated discussions about it. In fact, we delayed it for six months because there wasn't a consensus within the group. But after about six months, nearly everybody in the group came to the decision that this was a necessary last resort, that the church was not listening to reason or compassion. It wouldn't dialogue with us. We had to do something to stop that homophobia. And so, yeah, we did it after very lengthy considerations. And we only named those bishops where we had evidence of them being gay in private from multiple sources. These are people who, you know, saw these bishops at gay parties or knew their partners or things like that. Are there any more out there that, that haven't come out yet? <laughs> um, there are one or two, really? but, but they're not opposing LGBT plus equality, so we'll leave them be. <laughs> <laughs> but you better watch yourself. <laughs> Until last week, the Bishop of London's sex life was his own business. Then the right Reverend David Hope suddenly found himself having to discuss his sexual nature in every newspaper in the land, all because he'd been sent a letter from this man urging him to come out as a homosexual. One of your most amazing moments uh, was your attempted citizen's arrests of uh, Robert Mugabe. Were you terrified about doing that? Or was it just another day in the life of Peter Satchel? <laughs> I was. Yeah, we, 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 were all, we were all terrified because we didn't know whether his bodyguards were armed and, and might shoot us. We certainly feared violent assault. We also feared arrest and possible conviction on serious charges that could result in imprisonment even though we were acting in accordance with the law. Because in these kind of situations, the powers that be don't always follow the law. They're out to protect other powerful people, and they'll find some reason. In fact, they tried to frame us on charges of riot and affray. You know, we were totally peaceful and nonviolent. And that shows the depravity and extreme corruption of, of some police officers. They even tried to put those charges against us. In your Netflix film, uh, Hating Peter Tatchell, Chris Smith, he says that that's the moment where you became a national treasure. Do you think that was the, the turning point? Because before that, you're getting a lot of hate from people saying, stop outing bishops, stop causing trouble. And then after that, it seems like everyone sort of goes, oh, actually, we respect this guy now because yeah. he's been battered by um, Mugabe. I certainly think it was the turning point. Then people woke up and realised that I was not just an LGBT plus campaigner, but I was a wider, broader human rights campaigner as well, which I've been doing all my life. But I think the motivation uh, is somewhat suspect. <laughs> um, you know, if, if I'd done that to George W. Bush or Tony Blair, perhaps they wouldn't have been so, so sympathetic. So I think there was, I wouldn't say racism, but, you know, maybe an element of distinction based on the fact that this was a black president rather than a white western president so the oh, motives may not have been right but it was a very good positive thing to finally get some recognition that i was striving genuinely for universal human rights theresa may obviously thanked you when she was prime minister at a, a pride garden party in the garden of number 10 you were djing you i, I was um, <laughs> it was a party this one well it was a big surprise i was not expecting it at all 
And of course, it stands in contrast, the fact that I never got any thanks from Tony Blair or Gordon Brown when they were prime minister. It came from a conservative. And I think, you know, whatever you think about Theresa May, and I don't agree with lots of her policies, but I think it was quite principled, courageous and commendable that she had the, you know, courage and and willingness to thank me someone who is a fierce conservative <laughs> critic on most issues, uh, that, that, that took some courage and I think it was a sign of her integrity and principle. Have you had any, any direct dealings with the current administration? No. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll take a break. Okay, we're back. We're still with Peter Tatshaw. You've said that, and this is evidently true, compared to some activists, you've got off pretty lightly. Why do you think that is? I think that over time, people have grudgingly recognised that even if they don't agree with me, that I've stuck to my principles. I've paid a pretty high price in terms of, well, living on a poverty line income for 40 years, facing a lot of violent assaults. You know, I've stuck to my principles and, and people have sort of, you know, come around to say, well, we don't entirely agree with him, but he is a person of of principle. I think also that people have concluded that my human rights work is very much focused on LGBT plus rights, but it also includes rights for other people, for women, black and ethnic minority people, and overseas, you know, against dictatorship and tyranny in many countries. And, you know, it's hard for them to forever oppose me when they can see very clearly and evidently that I'm doing work that they would otherwise admire. But why do you think it is that you have not been put in jail or killed? How do you think you've swerved all of that? Well, of course, all my protests have been in the non-violent tradition of Mahandras Gandhi and Martin Luther King. So I've never used violence. I've never used criminal damage. I've always done non-violent, peaceful, direct action. So although I've been arrested about 100 times, (laughs) I've only got one standing conviction, and that was for uh, interrupting the Easter Sunday sermon of the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. George Carey, in protest at his support for legal discrimination against LGBT plus people. I was pushed to one side and he bellowed into the microphone for some minutes. Dr Carey supports discrimination against lesbian and gay people. He opposes lesbian and gay human rights. This is not a Christian teaching. That was an amazing protest, one of my faves. Dr George Carey in your Netflix film said that your fight has parallels with Jesus Christ. (laughs) I mean, is there a bigger compliment? I'm just hoping it doesn't end with crucifixion. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit over the top, but I think it was very generous for him, having for so long opposed the LGBT plus community, to recognise that the work I've done is commendable, uh, in his words. So that's good. And we, 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 want, we want former critics and enemies to come over to our side, not just for my sake, but for the sake of the wider LGBT plus community. My view has always been people are homophobic, but if they change, we should embrace that change and forgive. We, we, we can't forget, but we should forgive. So, for example, Michael Patillo was the defense secretary in the 1990s, and he 
authorized or oversaw the witch hunting of LGBT plus people out of the armed forces. So myself and others in the LGBT plus group outrage, we mercilessly protested against him. We followed him around his constituency. When he <laughs> stood for re-election in the Kensington by-election, we you know, mobbed and trailed every press conference, every public appearance. And we, we, we made hell for him. We didn't abuse him or threaten him or insult him, but we called out his homophobia time and time and time again. Eventually, after he was elected in that by-election, he was faced with a vote on the age of consent. He'd always opposed inequal age of consent in the past, but then he changed. And he changed on other LGBT plus issues, including the service of LGBT plus people in the armed forces. So my reaction was, great, he's changed. Fantastic. I wrote a letter to him personally thanking him because it's always my view that we want enemies as allies. And if people change, we should embrace that change. We should welcome them. We should get them on side and hope that they will continue to support our community, as indeed Michael Portillo has done. Did you think about outing him? <laughs> we, we did. Wait, is he gay? <laughs> well, he'd had <laughs> what? Uh, a gay relationship in his youth. Oh, no way. Um, yeah, we, we did um, crypto out him. Uh, with, <laughs> with, crypto with, out? with innuendo and insinuation. Right. That also riled him, obviously. <laughs> but, but he couldn't deny it because newspapers had evidence that he had the same-sex relationships in, in his youth. They and, had pics. You know, we, we called out the hypocrisy, you know. How can you as a person who'd had a gay relationship, how can you support homophobic discrimination? It's just, it's hypocrisy and homophobia. And I think he got the message. A gay and a non-gay. Do you think straight people have changed in this time? You Obviously know, their opinion of us has changed, but do yeah. you think they've changed for the better as well? Undoubtedly. Uh, I think there is increasingly a, a merging of, or, or a blurring or overlapping of LGBT plus and straight identities compared to the camp stereotypes of the 1950s and 60s most lgbt plus people are more more straight acting and looking and thank you <laughs> <laughs> i'm not saying it's a good thing but i think that old cliche way of being gay is well it still exists and it's perfectly valid but most people don't feel under pressure to be like that they're more like themselves on the other hand more and more straight men are sort of you know embracing a, a more gay lifestyle they look they manicure and look after their appearance more they yeah they're more open to you know same-sex experiences not damn but i have a very heterosexual friend who always gives me a kiss on the cheek always i can't imagine that that would be something a man would have done even 10 years ago no no absolutely not i identify as 100 percent gay mm. and always have never had any doubt but i can remember during the heyday of outrage in the 1990s I had this fantastic, extraordinary dream. Oh, really? A straight wet dream. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> no, you did not. <laughs> In this dream, I was kissing Uma Thurman, okay. <laughs> the actress. <laughs> yes. And we were kissing and I, I thought to myself, I'm gay. In this dream, I was thinking to myself, I'm gay. What, what, what's going on here? Right. But I thought, well, actually, I, this is quite nice. I, you know, I'd give it a go. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the more I did it, the more I liked it. And then, <laughs> fucked Uma Thurman, <laughs> or her lookalike. <laughs> um, we had great sex together. But the most amazing thing was the orgasm. Really? The orgasm was so powerful, I woke up shaking. It was almost like my heart was beating so strongly it was going to burst out of my chest. <laughs> so that was an amazing so that's, dream. That's the closest you've come to a straight experience. Yeah. 
So, but, but my reaction was, that was very interesting. <laughs> my conclusion is that there must somewhere, deep down in my psyche, there must be some kind of element of straightness, and I'm okay with it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't feel threatened by it. I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> I'm not going to shout from the rooftops about it. But, you know. <laughs> I mean, you just have. <laughs> keep, your, uh, keep your head down, Peter. <laughs> I didn't expect us to go there. Um, we, we digress. <laughs> yes, back to uh, human rights. <laughs> We'd like to ask Jeremy. Peter, I, I think... Peter. Peter, um, can we leave this to the questions, please? My favourite part of the film is um, when you get up and disrupt Jeremy Corbyn because you can sort of see the, the cogs in his head turning because he's obviously done a bit of protesting in his time too. So he's done that kind of thing. So he can't really say anything. So he's just sort of stood there going, oh God, here we go. Just let him get on with it. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I was broadly a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. But on that issue, Syria, he had lamentably failed. He was not supporting a parliamentary debate on UK aid to besiege civilian populations in cities like Aleppo. The people there were appealing for drops of food, medicine and fuel during that harsh winter of 2016, I think it was. And Jeremy Corbyn would not support that. He wouldn't push for a parliamentary debate. And I thought that was really, really shameful. So that's why with Syrian activists, I went there and disrupted his press conference. And quite rightly, it needed to be said. And his reaction, he didn't like it. Um, but as you say, he's the, you know, one of the great protesters of all time. Um, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And I always say, when people disrupt my press conferences or events, I, I say, it's, it's your right. Here's the microphone. Have, have your three minutes. Say what you want. What do people disrupt your uh, press conferences to say? Oh, it's usually homophobes and right. biphobes and transphobes who are objecting. And, uh, and you let them get up and say... and yeah. Yeah, my, my view is everyone has a right to protest, including to protest against me. And so I, I think, yeah, well, they, they can shout and barrack, but I, I sometimes offer them the platform and sometimes they accept it. I give them three minutes or so and they make their point. I respond and then off they go. So they've had the opportunity to protest and to get a response from me, which is the way politics should work. The idea that you can only listen to people who agree with you, that's just absurd. That's not democracy. That, that's tyranny. I don't understand how you get into some of these places because surely you must have to apply for accreditation or something and they'll just go, oh, well, Peter Tatchell's here. He's obviously here to disrupt <laughs> it. But then they let you in anyway. I think they assumed I wouldn't dare right. <laughs> And I had gotten accreditation. I think it was from Tribune magazine. <laughs> so it seemed all legit. When, um, we, uh, when we booked you for this, I was concerned you might show up with a banner. <laughs> I thought, is this his way of protesting our, our podcast for something we've not realised we've done wrong? President Putin sanctioned the 2013 law that has led to the persecution of LGBT Russians. President Putin has failed to stop the violent anti-gay witch hunts in Chechnya. I'm asking to stop the election. Even President Putin doesn't have the right to override the constitution. When you were arrested in Russia for protesting outside the Kremlin on the day of the World Cup starting, what happened in the police car? We don't get to see that bit. And I was really curious, like, what happens next after you've been arrested? Well, yeah, this was in 2018. Um, I think the police were very mindful that the world's TV and radio had been at the protest. They'd seen me being arrested. They didn't want any bad images so they were actually quite polite and treated me quite calmly. You know, there was no roughing up or violence of any kind. When I was in the police car, I thought things might turn nasty when I was out of public view. But um, they, were, they were gruff, 
and obviously annoyed that I'd succeeded in staging a protest. And they're obviously worried that I'd stolen the headlines instead of being the opening day of the World Cup and President Putin on the front pages. It was going to be me and my protest against the persecution of LGBT plus people in Chechnya. But they weren't aggressive or threatening. But when we got to the police station, again, they were very formal and brusque. You sense they were quite annoyed that I you know, mm. managed to pull this off <laughs> despite their security. But in the end, I got bailed to appear subsequently in court. But before I uh, was required to do that, I got on a plane and came back to Britain. Yeah. But there's probably still a, a warrant out for my arrest somewhere in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and um, no, no spoilers, but the World Cup is happening in, in Qatar this Absolutely. year. Absolutely. What have you got planned for that? Well, another classic example of, you know, why on earth did Qatar get the World Cup? Hosting the World Cup is not a right. It's an honor and a privilege and should only be accorded to countries that respect the human rights of all football players and fans. Well, quite clearly, Qatar does not. You know, its record on women's rights, LGBT plus rights, and the rights of migrant workers is appalling. So I've been already, since they were granted the right to host the World Cup way back about 10 years ago, I've been doing lots of posts and campaigns around the human rights abuses in Qatar. In the lead up to the World Cup, over 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar. Six and a half thousand. These are mainly cheap imported labor from countries like Bangladesh and India and Pakistan. They live in appalling conditions. You know, I think we really do have to call out Qatar. And of course, on LGBT plus rights, you know, you can be imprisoned. In theory, under Sharia law, you could be executed. But the big secret in Qatar is they have secret gay conversion therapy centers where gay people are sent and subjected to very strong, high-pressure counselling and um, psychotherapy to try and turn them straight. They're held there basically against their will. They can't leave. It's like a form of imprisonment. And that needs to be called out. Are you going to go over there and or is, is that top secret? I think my precise plans are now under wraps. But um, <laughs> you can be sure that the Qatar World Cup in November this year will not pass off without a Peter Tatchell intervention. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good thing the World Cup is there, but it is a good thing that it gives people like you the opportunity to shout loudly about the things they're doing wrong. It does inadvertently shine a spotlight on their wrongdoings just as much as it gives them a ton of money. There's got to be something good out of it. You're right. If Qatar had not been granted the World Cup, we wouldn't have been able to do these campaigns because, you know, the spotlight would not be on Qatar and most of the media and politicians would not be interested. But the fact that Qatar got the World Cup makes it an issue. And it's a great opportunity to shine a spotlight on the abuses which I and Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch are doing. Well, we'll see you in November. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, book the tickets, Dan. I'd be too scared. I would just freeze. I, I am nervous. I'm nervous. If I go there, what might happen? Will I be arrested? Will I be tortured? Will I be detained in prison for days, weeks or months? Of course I'm nervous, but my fears and anxieties are overridden by my sense that we've got to do something to expose what's happening in Qatar. You know, every kind of protest like that that I do, I'm incredibly nervous. I'm shaking like a leaf. My body temperature plummets. I've got goose pumps. My stomach is churning over. Some cases I even feel the need to defecate or urinate. I'm so, so nervous. But I just, you know, find a way of overcoming that fear by focusing on the issue and the importance of supporting people in that place who need a light shone on the human rights abuses that they're suffering. And that's what <laughs> gets me through it. 
how do we be more Peter Tatchell? Well, I would not expect anyone to do the crazy <laughs> things that I've done. You know, from the bashings, particularly the bashings by President Mugabe's bodyguards in Brussels in 2001 and neo-Nazis in Moscow in 2007, it has left me with some cognitive and eye damage. So my eyesight is not as good as it was. I have troubled my balance, coordination, memory, and concentration. But of course, it doesn't stop me, as you can see. I mean, doing an interview like this is more difficult than it used to be. I'm, I'm struggling to find the words and get them in order, but I can still do it. So I would not expect any of you to go through the same kind of things. You're welcome to try if you wish. <laughs> but, you know, the important thing is, for each of us to do something, whether that be to write an email to your MP to ask them to support a ban on conversion therapy or the reform of the Gender Recognition Act for trans people. You can go to a website called writetothem.com. If you put in your postcode, it will tell you who your member of parliament is and who your local councillors are, and you can email them direct. Uh, it's a great tool. If you're concerned about any issue, use it. And that's something we can all do. We can sign online petitions. We can join protests, vigils and marches. There's loads of things you can do. The important thing is to do something. Do not leave it to others because they might be leaving it to you. Are you worried about when you're not here and who's going to continue fighting like this? Well, over the years, as I said, I've always collaborated with other people. It's been a collective effort. And over those years, I've worked with and helped sort of train up lots of different people, particularly in the outrage days in the 1990s until about 10 years ago, lots of people came through outrage and learned the skills of campaigning. And some went on to work for Amnesty International or uh, Index on Censorship or other organizations. So that's a sort of legacy. But I do hope that someone will take over as director of the Peter Tatchell Foundation and continue the work that I've begun and done for the last 55 years. The battle is not over. We have made huge progress, but there's still work to be done. And can I just say that if anyone's interested if you want to follow the work that I do, please go to my foundation's website, which is petertatchellfoundation.org. Uh, in the top right-hand corner of the homepage, there's a little button which says, Join Us. If you click on that and give us your email address, we'll send you a weekly bulletin of LGBT plus and other human rights stories. Most of them serious, but some funny, quirky ones as well, which you'll find <laughs> quite entertaining. It's totally free. There's no charge. And then next to the join us button is the donate button. That's where you can go if you want to make a donation to help us carry on our work. Thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you so much. And, uh, <laughs> um, long may you have many more episodes of Gay and Non-Gay. Thank you. Uh, it's fantastic. I love it. Well, thank uh, you, Peter. My You're best wishes to all your listeners and viewers. A gay and a non-gay. Looking back on our history, how do you think our future looks as queer people? Do you think things are regressing or do you think that's just panic? Do you think actually things are getting better and they'll continue to? Overall, the trajectory is we're making greater progress. But of course, there is some slippage here in Britain, you know, not having a conversion therapy ban, not having reform of the Gender Recognition Act. Still, LGBT plus refugees fleeing persecution are often put in asylum detention centres like criminals, which they're not. Still, we have unacceptable levels of homophobic, biophobic and transphobic hate crime. So there's still battles to fight and win. And that's why we need you on board. But overall, things are getting better. But they'll only keep on getting better if we keep on campaigning. <laughs> you know, if we just sit back and take things for granted. Change won't happen. Although I can see no reason why we would suffer any major setback. Who can tell what might happen 
in 10, 20 or 30 years. You know, we could suffer catastrophic climate destruction. There may be a, a new financial collapse causing economic chaos. And in those circumstances, there might be the rise of far-right parties who demand strong government to fix things. And some people might fall for that. And we know that those kinds of movements have always tended to target minorities as scapegoats. So we should never assume that the gains won are secure forever. Remember Germany in 1930. Berlin was the queer capital of the world. You know, people from all over the world went to Berlin as a safe haven for LGBTs. Yet just three years later, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis came to power. And before the year was out, the first gay and bisexual men were being carted off to concentration camps. Never take anything for granted. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com